And good evening, everyone, from the high desert, as Art used to say, in the beautiful land of enchantment where we had an annular eclipse today, which we'll get to in a moment. This is going to be a very complicated, but I hope historic show, because we have so much to cover, and unfortunately, it's against the backdrop of absolute horrors and tragedy and impending catastrophe in the Middle East. And toward the end of the show, I'm going to hopefully lay some some breadcrumbs for a show we're working on, maybe for next weekend, if I can assemble all the elements, to show why what we're doing tonight is in fact directly connected to the extraordinary horror going on in the Middle East, which looks to be a major nexus in world history. Uh, I have all kinds of forebodings about what's about to occur, but I don't think it's accidental. I don't think in the uh, litany of things we've talked about, everything, everywhere, all at once, that it's accidental or coincidental that there are now two major wars on the planet in which we, the United States, are either indirectly or potentially directly involved. At the same time, we have a dysfunctional Congress where one party cannot even agree on a temporary Speaker of the House for the first time booted out in the history of the United States. And, of course, we're going to talk about tonight some extraordinary, literally world-changing, game-changing, historic discoveries on the moon, which, if they are followed up, if they are, if, if, if they are um, appropriately appreciated, have the potential for changing the context of the things that are going on on planet Earth tonight because they introduce the X outside factor. What happens to human beings if they ever are confronted with absolute irrevocable evidence that A, we are not alone, and B, some of the ETs showing up are in fact members of the extended human family, and C, there are bad guys out there, and they apparently are messing with and intervening in, in total contravention of uh, Gene's prime directive, in the affairs of planet Earth. And all those dots, which we can document, I mean, you all know how I really love good, hard data. There is hard data to support these very, very expansive and sweeping uh, contextual comments for the horrors that are going on in the Middle East tonight. So that gets rid of item number one in my uh, radio with pictures items for all of you new folks who are coming over to us tonight to kind of see what we're doing from coast because I got a last minute invitation from Lisa and George and on um, Monday night I did two hours minus an hour and a half of commercials (laughs) I don't see how they do that over there because you can't follow a thought you can't follow a train of of, of interaction etc etc so for all those people who were just kind of tantalized in the coast audience who came here who came here tonight to actually um, partake of the smorgasbord of amazing data 
that we have, uh, and I don't, oh, there, there, that background noise. See, it's not even Mercury retrograde, and we're having some calm problems, which have gone away, luckily. Anyway, for all of you from coast who wanted to know what's really going on, we have had two extraordinary historical breakthroughs in our research, breakthroughs which have literally changed the game. They have turned everything upside down, and we'll get to those in a moment. But I want to start with my second item, which, of course, is a uh, news item coming from, I believe, the New York Times about the ring eclipse, the uh, annular eclipse, which crossed from Oregon down through the western United States, exited into the Gulf of Mexico uh, uh, over Texas, and then continued on down to South America. Um, we had an extraordinary view here in um, New Mexico, and I was doing measurements. I was doing hyperdimensional measurements, and uh, I'm going to leave it to one of our guests tonight to describe visually what it looked like from just a few miles away here in northern New Mexico, which for, you know, a couple, three hours was truly the land of enchantment. So we'll get to that momentarily. I want to start now in on item number three. Again, for those of you who are new to the show, you go to the other side of midnight.com. You click on tonight's banner, which says very dramatically, and believe me, we can back this up, which says, have we found, let me do it exactly, did Apollo 12 find another Stonehenge on the moon? Because in fact, geometrically, celestially, in every way, it looks like that's exactly what the Apollo 12 astronauts did. And it has been confirmed by other space programs, not even domestic, that is of the United States. So we'll get back to that momentarily. Um, item number three. In the last few weeks, there's been a major shift politically in discussing extraterrestrial life. For decades, it has fallen to the Air Force or the intelligence agencies to explain, actually to explain away, um, the uh, bizarre problems dealing with extraterrestrials, UFOs, UAPs, etc., etc. And a few weeks ago, the current administrator of NASA, uh, former Senator Bill Nelson, formally opened, as I predicted last spring, opened an office dedicated to UAP, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon, and with some pressing from outside and inside folks, actually named within a few hours the director, so we can all check up what's going on. That's item number three. The most important part of this new office, as was forecast in the spring um, four-hour you know, YouTube video preview uh, of their 16 consultants, was that one of the scientists said that extraterrestrial artifacts, or what they call them these days, techno-signatures, meaning things left by high-tech civilizations, or maybe not so high-tech, would be part of the current NASA UAP study. Well, just in time, because as you may have noted, there is incredible 
disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, non-information, ricocheting back and forth in the UFO slash UAP community, which of course NASA cannot help but be drawn into this ever-going 30, 40, 50-year soap opera, which has always swirled around the ET UFO question, you know, are what we're seeing in the skies even 75, 80 years ago or 100 years ago, are they part of an extraterrestrial civilization? Are they some super advanced secret civilization on the planet? Are they time travelers? Are they real bona fide aliens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As I've said now steadfastly for many, many years, the way to cut through this noise, the way to solve the problem once and for all has to do with artifacts and ruins and evidence of alien signatures, techno signatures on nearby planets, beginning with the moon. And then there's Mars and there's Mercury and there's the moons of Jupiter and the moons of Saturn. There's bizarre asteroids, which are not left over from the formation of the solar system. But in fact, some of them have all the earmarks of ancient, ancient, very battered, ruined spacecraft, space habitats, or even spacecraft. And even if they measure miles across, for a sufficiently advanced technology. Remember Arthur Clarke's um, you know, famous third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology, even from ETs, is going to be indistinguishable from magic. So while we tonight here on Earth cannot create spacecraft that are thousands of feet across or many miles or even tens of miles, for whoever left this stuff around the solar system, that would have been you know, der reguer, would have been duck soup. It would have been part of their extraordinarily advanced understanding of the universe, of the laws of physics, and control of gravity, all of which come along for the ride if you can verify that some of the things that NASA has seen in deep space, meaning beyond the planets, beyond the Earth-Moon system, are in fact extraterrestrial relics of an extraordinarily advanced bygone civilization, or maybe more than one civilization. And the fact that NASA now has a formal office where evidence and papers and documentation and real data can be submitted is the astonishing breakthrough that I think is going to shatter, maybe not tomorrow, but in the next few months at the outside, I think, given the rate at which things are progressing on the UFO UAP front that will shatter the paradigm that the only way we're ever going to know if we're alone is if some UFO comes and lands on the proverbial White House lawn. No, there is another door. It's the artifact doorway. It's the ancient ruins doorway. It's the actual physical samples of some of their extraordinary technology doorway, which brings me to item number four. One of the two main things that I talked about on Coast on Monday night was that we've had two astonishing breakthroughs in the last month. The second one we're going to talk about tonight, the Stonehenge on the Moon. The first one I talked about here 
in a couple of shows we devoted the so-called Abbey Lobe Challenge. And if you look at my item number four, here is one example, a thin section of an Apollo 16 moon rock, which shows clearly and unequivocally ET nanotechnology, ET machines imprisoned inside this absolutely randomly selected rock. I had no time to go through thousands of photographs. I went to the Apollo 16 NASA website, clicked on petrology, which is where the geology of thin section rocks hangs out. And the first image I brought up showed something astonishing, which is number four. There are little machines and fragments of bigger machines in a rock sample, which is measuring about two millimeters across. Now you're gonna to say to yourself, how the hell can there be a nano machine that measures less than a millimeter? Well, we'll leave that for a future further discussion, but it's part of this breakthrough series that the Enterprise mission has been undergoing over the last few weeks and months because there are 842 pounds of Apollo moon rocks on Earth tonight. And our challenge to Dr. Avi Loeb, which we expressed first on this show, and then I did it again on Coast on Monday night, and I will reiterate it here, please prove us wrong. As a tenured professor at Harvard, as the former head, the director of the Harvard College Observatory, as a major player in the international scientific community in astronomy and cosmology, let alone in his newly chosen role as a leading principal investigator checking out UAP, potential extraterrestrial spacecraft operating either in the Earth's atmosphere or like with a Muamua, sailing in from interstellar space and then sailing out again. My challenge then, my challenge tonight, and my challenge for the next foreseeable future will be, Dr. Loeb, please prove us wrong. Enter the political framework of NASA. Request those samples that are made available freely by the agency to tenured and well-backgrounded experts such as yourself. Bring to bear the same technologies that confirmed that whatever entered the Earth's atmosphere and was tracked by the Pentagon radars back in 2014 and then dredged up as little microscopic BB-sized samples from two miles down off Indonesia in the South Pacific and then brought into the Harvard labs and analyzed to where the elemental composition was decidedly not solar system derived, but interstellar chemical composition derived, including key elements that allowed one of our guests uh, a few uh, weeks ago, Dr. John Brandenburg, from his background as a nuclear weapons physicist, familiar with the full panoply of how you build nuclear weapons on Earth, he has said categorically, both on air, on our show, as well as in a peer-reviewed paper published a couple weeks ago out of India, that the materials that Avi Loeb analyzed, rather than being any random ET 
artificial elemental mix, in fact, converged on one most likely explanation for the titanium, the lithium, the brillium, the iron, without nickel, because nickel and iron go together in the solar system. This, whatever entered the atmosphere in 2014, had no nickel, but a lot of iron. And the most interesting and telltale composition included uranium. It was Brandenburg's technical and expert conclusion, having worked with nuclear technology for all his professional life, that whatever entered the atmosphere was in fact a nuclear technology. And I know that the night he was on, he tried to put a kind of a nice face on it by talking about the Orion uh, nuclear propulsion technology, which uh, the U.S. uh, uh, Atomic Energy Commission dallied with back in the 1950s and 60s until President Kennedy said no and voted to go with Project Apollo instead. But in fact, the alternative to an Orion propulsion technology which would have the same bizarre elemental composition as load measured is in fact the casing, the melted droplets of an actual nuclear weapon. Which brings me back to item number one and the impending catastrophe, the war catastrophe that's just on the verge of ensuing in the Middle East. If we can in fact identify that someone out there is not very happy with Earth and is sending us oblique and rather overt messages. It will meld into the larger matrix that our first contact with extraterrestrials may not be the so-called space brothers, but may in fact be someone else who does not have the best interests of the human race at heart And what John Brandenburg analyzed after Avi Loeb brought it up from the bottom of the ocean off Indonesia could in fact be part of a developing scenario that we all need to pay very attention to on the eve of whatever is going to unfold in Israel tomorrow or the next day or the next. Item number five. Um, This brings us to, of course, the so-called Stonehenge on the moon. Um, A few years ago, a dedicated physicist who is also an avid planetologist and uh, follower of the uh, international space efforts posted two items, which are my number five and number six. Item number three, I'm sorry, item number five is a recounting of the history of the Surveyor 3 mission touching the face of the moon. And item number six is a recounting by the same physicist whose name is Drew. And you can click on those and that will take you to his website and his background and all that. He's done a really great job of overviewing both of these missions. The Surveyor mission being unmanned, the Apollo 12 mission being manned. And most uniquely in NASA history, in 1967, in um, April, on April 20th, NASA managed to land the Surveyor 3 spacecraft uh, on the moon 
in an area called Oceanus Procellarum, the Ocean of Storms. And then two and a half years later, on November 19th, the Apollo 12 crew, the second crew in the Apollo program series to follow Apollo 11 in July of 69, in November, on November 19th of 69, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean landed the Apollo lunar module on the rim of the uh, 500-foot diameter crater, now known as the Surveyor Crater, where they could literally depart their lunar module, collect samples, take lots of photographs, and then walk over to the Surveyor, clip off some of the key components, and bring them all back from the moon. That, as of about a week and a half to two weeks ago, is the overview of my intimate knowledge of both the Surveyor mission and the Apollo 12 visitation of the Surveyor 3 landing site. And then um, an amateur named Marty McGuire, who is the backyard astronomy guy from Pennsylvania, self-labeled on his website, which is uh, linked in item number eight. Uh, On number seven, he posted on Reddit a comparison of Chandrayaan-2 orbital imagery from lunar orbit looking down on the Apollo sites, both Apollo 11 and Apollo 12. And the reason he had highlighted the Apollo 12 landing is as you can see in item number seven, if you look at the shadow of the lunar module and the descent stage right there in the middle, in the lower right-hand corner, just above the um, caption, which says um, ISRO, credit ISRO uh, 21405. On that date, the Indian orbiter from the mission preceding the successful Chandrayaan-3 went into orbit around the moon in 2021, uh, actually back in 2019. And in 2021, it photographed just a few hundred feet from the uh, surviving lower stage of the lunar module, seen there very brilliantly uh, in in terms of uh, its shadow. It saw something absolutely extraordinary which was a round circle of stones configured in a very artificial-looking configuration, which in fact looks all the world like some kind of ancient stone circle, a la Stonehenge, on the moon. Now, McGuire has done no analysis. He simply posted the images. Um, His website is full of very detailed ISRO imagery, It's kind of hard to get to the raw imagery, um, but uh, he did it, and he left instructions on his website for how others can do it. Now, this was not, of course, the first orbital imaging of the Apollo sites. That fell to NASA uh, and the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which was launched into lunar orbit in 2009, but didn't get around to taking close-up images from a 30-mile orbit until 2011, and on the 30-mile imagery from LRO, the circle we're going to talk about extensively tonight is, unless you know exactly where it is, 
from the Chandrayaan to imagery, it just is not blatantly obvious. It can be just passed over as just a bunch of rocks because the smaller ones, due to the limitations of the LRO imaging, are just not visible. Now, in 2021, the uh, NASA agency lowered the orbit of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter from 31 miles down to 13. And they took another series of images of all the Apollo sites. And that is where you see in number nine, the uh, Surveyor Crater, the location of Surveyor 3, the location of the Intrepid Lunar Module uh, Descent Stage, um, and the circle. But it's interesting that of all the places where NASA could have put the caption for the Intrepid Lunar Lander, they put it right over the location of what we're thinking strongly tonight is the stone circle. Now, is this just an accident? Or was this an effort to get people who might have noticed something odd on the much closer imaging to simply not see it over the background or under the background of the intrepid uh, annotation? We will not know that until someone in NASA tells us the truth. Which brings me now to item number 10. Item number 10 is a comparison between a surveyor surface image from the Apollo 12 crew. This is a shot taken by Alan Bean, uh, standing very close to the surveyor spacecraft, which is in the background. On the right-hand side on the comparison is the um, overhead shot from Chandrayaan 2 showing the circle. And as you can see in Holger Eisenberg's um, annotated image, he has circled the central stone of the circle seen from orbit. And lo and behold, it is in fact a tetrahedron. Now, there is a lot more. We're getting down to the bottom of the hour here. If you look at number 11, the thing that I noticed, which is now a uh, wide angle showing the descent stage of Apollo 12, Intrepid on the upper left, the circle is in the lower right. There is an alignment across the circle to that central stone, which is the tallest one. You can see that by simply looking at the shadows. And it's a tetrahedron. And it appears to be perfectly aligned to a much larger object about, um, well, it's a circle, as we measured, is about 30 feet across. Uh, this is about uh, seven or eight feet uh, in, in length and maybe five feet high. It's a very large object on the lunar landscape. And the circle in that northeast direction appears to have an alignment directly toward it which of course opens up the question, what is that object? Which of course caused me, and as you'll hear momentarily, Holger to go through the archives with a fine tooth comb. And I found a relatively close shot from about 200 feet away, um, taken by Alan Bean. I enlarged it, as you can see, I did two versions, a properly contrast enhanced version on the right, and an overexposed version on the left, so you can see into the shadows from scattered uh, uh, light off the lunar surface. And you can see it's got planar sides, it's got edges, it's got sharp corners. It looks like it's a um, pentagram with the top in disarray, the bottom in good shape, with some kind of an opening 
on the right-hand side. In other words, it appears to be a very peculiar, planar box. Not a rock, but a box, which includes a very sharp right-angle shadow on the upper left of the right-hand image. And we'll get to details, you know, as we move through the morning. Well, as one of the things that I did, I went and began measuring the alignments between all the so-called rocks, both within the circle and outside around its perimeter. And I've got 11 green arrows with lines connecting, showing this extraordinary set of alignments up to and including four separate objects, which are literally aligned with something on the horizon. So what could that possibly be? Well, we're at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight, and we will talk about this with our panel tonight when we return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, um, October 14th. Gosh, the year is going by at warp nine. So this is our, our hypothesis, that this is, in fact, this circle of stones with a tetrahedron in the center, tallest of them all, aimed at a large structure to the northeast on the moon, according to the current uh, azimuth alignments was in fact 
intended to attract attention from whoever would develop spaceflight here on Earth, who would someday go to the moon, find this circle, land next to it, go to the box-like structure, open it, and extract something of vital importance to the human race. And then something happened. Okay, uh, let me go to my guests, and I want to introduce Holger, because um, his uh, uh, part of the puzzle is he spent the last week incredibly painstakingly uh, backtracking our research so that he could find all of the available photography. You know Holger, he's a a systems computer uh, expert. He immigrated from Germany in 1999, I'm sorry, in 2016. He's, you know, employed gainfully up and down Silicon Valley. He's an expert in computer image processing. He discovered the background to the strangely colored Viking imagery some decades ago. And you can read everyone's bio. I don't want to spend a lot of time on bios tonight because they are on the other side of midnight. Just click on the fast links to bios on the guest page underneath the uh, banner. So without further ado, Holger, what did you find as you began to look into this mysteriously, delightfully mysterious puzzle? Richard is having uh, problems hearing all of us, but we can hear each other. So Holger, why don't you just uh, take the ball and run with it? Yeah. I can tell about the discovery. Yes, I saw it first on on Twitter while reading news on uh, September 21 this year, one day before Equinox. (laughs) And uh, I just saw a normal posting from someone who is working in the, I guess, space science field, or at least uh, enthusiast about space science, space flight, and he posted it just as general. uh, high-resolution photos from the Chandrayaan-2 mission showing the Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 lander sites uh, from actually year 21, two years ago, but the posting was from this year. And mm-hmm. as soon as you click on the image, you see on the lower right this mysterious bouldering of 10-meter diameter, slightly larger than the Apollo 12 uh, landing platform. And at, at first, like, was thinking that someone might have faked the image, which of course happens today. But uh, then uh, you, I could find confirmation from lunar reconnaissance orbiter images on official NASA websites, which uh, were a bit difficult to find because NASA reorganized organized their website uh, during the recent three weeks, and some URLs might have changed. So. Uh, if you see something missing, uh, that's due to the new website design. But there it was. Uh, the ring was there on the lunar reconnaissance orbiter images from 2011. And uh, I also checked all the images from all from lunar reconnaissance orbiter in lower resolution, and there you can see it vaguely. Uh, and look at the other. Uh, it's the other mission, uh, the lunar orbiter was an earlier mission in 1967, 
which I wanted also to check for verification that it was not introduced maybe by the, the astronaut on the surface. Uh, but uh, even on the Luna Orbiter 3 mission 1967, you see it not, you don't see the ring itself, but you see the central stone. Uh, so there was something there in 1967 already. So that means uh, it was not built by modern men, the astronauts. That's uh, very huh. clear. And, Holger, why don't you direct people to your your photographs? Yeah, that was the last one I talked about was item eight, the Lunar Orbiter three image from 1967, where you can see the uh, the planned surveyor three site, uh, the lower right uh, marking. It was before the landing of the robotic probe surveyor three in 1967 taken. Uh, so that nothing is there visible there before the landing. You see a, a bright X on the left, which looks like something on the surface, but that is a, a resort mark on the camera, on the Vidicon camera of the lunar orbiter. The, the bright X there, that is imaging artifact from the camera. And on top, on the upper side, you see the mark with circle center, that is the the center stone of this 10 meter diameter circle we see on the more recent images. But here on this old one, you see the center stone. So something is actually really there on the surface. You did a remarkable job of um, uh, sleuthing there. The, uh, the because I could, not, I could not believe it. <laughs> I've seen so many uh, artif potential artifacts on, on the moon and Mars over the years. And uh, after, after the space on Mars and pyramid, I have not uh, seen something similar. And sometimes they're but, just rocks, I know. See, I actually say that too. <laughs> but in this case, and, you, but, really but, nailed it. you really nailed this one down, I think. And this is special because if you see something similar on Earth, if you see such a ring of 12 stones around the center stone on Earth somewhere in nature, absolutely, can easily confirm that it's not random natural occurrence. <laughs> even even with each individual rock boulder being irregular and maybe even each individual boulder looking like a natural block, if they are arranged like this, you would immediately consider it to be man-made on Earth, like I have seen personally in 2006. That is the last image here. Oh, no, it's not the last. It's uh, number 10 from my items. I uh, visited a stone circle in northeastern Germany in 2006. And uh, if you just look at the individual boulder, which are about one meter, three, three feet high, you, you would consider them to be natural boulders. But if you see the complete arrangement, which is here also in a 10 meter diameter circle here in Northern Germany, you immediately uh, associate that with uh, some man-made activity. In this case, it is considered to be 2,600 years old in Germany. In England, I heard there, of course, now that there are many more of those circles in that size, which are considerably smaller than Stonehenge, for example, which is uh, three times 
compared to this diameter in size, and also the blocks are larger, of course. But uh, this, this style of, of rings you find everywhere in Europe, this smaller type of irregular rings, uh, that is uh, quite common, and they are not random nature uh, artifacts. Well, they seem to have some sort of overarching meaning, because even if we're not too sure, case by case, what they, uh, what they were after, because so they must be inspired by something in common, you know that makes makes this all the more curious. Yeah, I, uh, indeed. Now, uh, back then in 2006, when I visited that that uh, ring in Germany, that uh, the reason was I wanted to take a look at uh, tool marks on some of those, which are uh, similar sure. to those tool marks you see in Egypt, for example. And I was not uh, thinking much about the arrangement, uh, the total picture there. Because I, they they don't look spectacular. They they are a bit uh, irregular arranged and uh, not really precise. Uh, so that was the reason I I was not thinking much about the arrangement, the the larger picture here. But uh, it's uh, still mysterious. Why have they been created like this? Is there some some key, some alignment to solar positions like Equinox or the solstices like Stonehenge? But I have not much thought of laws, laws on Earth even yeah. But I thought Maria maybe a bit more. Well, you know, Holger. you know, Holger, out of out of yeah. all of your pictures. Uh, I think uh, one of the easiest ones to see the stone circle is your picture number one, where you can see that stone circle with its center point just left of center. It's really clear for people that haven't looked at these sorts of photos before. Uh, yes, so uh, for those who uh, are seeing that for the first time, that is indeed the item one should be the starting uh, point there. That is a uh, uh, the detail we are talking about today, yeah, and it it really at first uh, you think it's uh, someone painted it there on the image there, but it's it's real, it's a real object, and uh, it's about ten meter diameter, uh, about twelve stones around a center stone, maybe fourteen. It's a bit difficult to see because. Uh, some of them has, have a twin stone behind them or not completely in a circle for about 12 to 14 stones, I would say. Each about one meter to one meter 50 in height, so three to five feet height. And the center one, maybe one meter 50 to two meter high, so three to six feet. Completely similar to those in there. England or Germany. Uh, sorry? How deep is the dust around there, or the lunar surface? I know it varies from place to place, but I've seen the ref read a reference of it somewhere. An interesting question, because uh, that is even discussed in the uh, Lunar Surveyor 3 uh, mission report, the robotic mission from 1967, where they are discussing uh, how deep are, in general, those observed rocks and boulders uh, sunken uh, into the surface. That is a, just a normal scientific discussion there. Yeah. And how deep those 
rink rocks are in the ground, we don't know. And the dust surface itself is only three centimeter, a bit more than one inch. Uh, what was observed by the astronauts when walking around there. They only sank about one inch maximum with their boots into the ground. So pretty much what we see is what we get. Yeah, I got that impression from the transcript because they were talking about dust getting all over everything and yet nothing seemed to be sinking very deep into it. So Yeah, they didn't have any problems with walking around. Yeah. But also on Earth, if uh, I remember that site in Germany there, uh, those rocks I would consider to be at least half to even the same size uh, below ground, so that they're in, gen in, in total than twice the size you see above ground. That would be my estimation from those I've seen on Earth. Yeah. Well, sometimes you have to get there with a shovel, I guess. Uh, the Those moai that are so famous on Easter Island, yeah, we're only seeing about 25% of them sticking up over the ground. I, I was surprised to see them the first time about 10 years ago in, on a photo. Only haven't seen the, the heads before. And then uh, after they've been dug out, you see they are complete uh, uh, human-like figures with, with the body and feet below. Uh, about three, three to four times larger than above ground. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was. They, I remember the picture I saw that they had taken at the site. Uh, you know, when they dug it up, and they, uh, you could, they were all grinning. You know, like they knew they had really found something, something remarkable because they, they expected them to be, you know, just a featureless shaft, and in fact, they were fully detailed. So. But in this case, this looks like a uh, a real Stonehenge-type arrangement. Stone circles in the British Isles, for example, don't have that much stone beneath the ground. In fact, at Avebury, some of the stones are only 18 inches in the ground because they're in the solid chalk bedrock. They're not in the earth. And I think this is going to be the case on the lunar stone circle as well, that they're going to be in the kind of basalt rock, so they don't need much below ground. It's all about the engineering of the stones. That's uh, oh. good to know that uh, so only half a meter below ground and then maybe uh, uh, one meter above ground on the moon. And, uh. Yeah, thank you, Maria. That actually is, is pretty significant because that means that pretty much anything we see around there is largely what we're looking at. You know, we're not seeing a misleading piece of something else. No, when you have a look at, for example, some of my uh, pictures, number one and two, they are identical to some of the stone circles in the British Isles. And it's uh, with a diameter of 10 meters. Now, the very early sites, which we call Neolithic over here, about 6,000 years ago, they're huge, like Stonehenge and like Avebryhenge, which has a diameter of 1,088 feet. However, when it comes to the Bronze Age, they become much smaller. That's where this category of the moon fits in. It's like a Bronze Age stone circle. And like I said, there are some fascinating examples where you go to Wales in Monmouthshire, for example, which is my aerial shot number one and picture number two, and they are uh -huh. literally like twins. 
Wow. Yeah, the, the same circle I saw in northeast Germany, the same type. And yeah, now thinking about it, I'm, I'm also wondering what, what was the purpose of those on Earth, even with that. Is there some discussion ongoing? On, in the German side, nobody uh, really knows. There are some uh, sagas, uh, stories, of course, that uh, people were converted to stones and dancing around, but nothing really scientific ongoing there is ex explanation. Maria, Maria, your picture number two is is stunning. You can really see the the moon circle superimposed on on the Earth. That's a great photo. Thank you. Uh, that was for the example to show that the technology used on Earth is going to be very similar to what's being used on the moon because that cannot be coincidental because there's such uh, a likeness. Now, the idea about stone circles in the UK with all of our uh, advances in geomancy suggests that the earth currents and some lays are actually from the magma within inside of the earth. Master Dancer Hamish Miller points out that the earth currents, Maria Michael, which are associated to a lay line, that's called a, mm -hmm. a lay system, where you have two currents entwining a lay, actually have stemmed from the biomagnetic energy from the molten magma in the heart of the earth. So it's the heart of the earth that produces these earth currents. Now, even though on the moon there's inactive volcanic activity today, I mean, there's just no uh, activity there, there's probably going to be a lot of magma beneath the surface of the moon, which would make any lunar currents akin to earth currents on the moon twice as powerful than on earth. Oh, could the relationship between uh, the gravitational effects between the Earth and the Moon have any uh, effect on that to multiply, multiply it? it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, probability. probability. That's, That's what I was pointing out. Hmm. Ah, I love it when stuff ties together. Yeah. I Maria, years and years ago, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard something about the Avebury stones, where as the stones circled around in a circle, you would have sort of a masculine stone and then a shorter, squattier feminine stone. And, and all around the ring, it would be masculine, feminine, or positive, negative, positive, negative. Have you found that to be true, or is that just a myth? Well, in part, you're partly correct. It was actually Professor Stuart Piggott and the archaeologist Alexander Keeler that came out with the terms masculine and feminine. What a feminine stone is claimed to be at Avebury is a diamond-shaped stone. If you imagine more of a diamond shape, that's said to be a feminine stone. And the more column-like stones are said to be the, the phallic masculine stones. But it doesn't mm -hmm. go positive-negative. Intriguingly so, in the southern inner circle at Avebury, you, ha you had a gigantic masculine stone at the center and then feminine stones surrounding that. So at the eightfold year of the equinoxes and the solstices and the cross-quarter days, the shadow of the obelisk stone would hit one of the feminine stones, uh, making it kind of calendrical to some regard. So yes, there are masculine and feminine stones, but they are contained within a stone circle. And along the Avebury Avenue, they are paired to be opposite each other, a masculine and a feminine stone. 
Oh, you say these things and then just stop, and my mind is just reeling. That's uh, yeah, that's yes. That's well, wonderful. I I studied the uh, the stones at Avebury over you know oh. many many years, and have yes. um, written a, a book uh, about all of the the stones. But what really charges the stones with uh, energy? is if they're rooted into an earth current or an earth energy pattern. What I suspect is going on on the moon is that there's a circular type of earth energy called a primary halo. It consists of three rings of concentric energy constantly charging. I've recently said on other media programs that Atlantis was based on this. The circular city of Atlantis was based on being sighted on the primary halo then that charges the stones with energy and you get megalithic energy and the, the interesting thing is the stone and we've measured this um uh, completely about 10 years ago and i've got an article on my website about it we measured the uh, energy coming out of the megaliths so what we uh, think is going on is they're sighted on circular earth energy patterns the stone kind of changes that earth energy to aerial energy and then projects it to other stones in a stone circle. And I show this, for, for example, on the, uh, I think it's number seven on my, my pictures, it's called crosstalk. So if we have a look at that energetic crosstalk at the Rollwright stone circle, where each stone is beaming, um, uh, it's about 18 hertz, actually, frequency at another stone. It makes the stone circle come alive. And I think exactly like what's going on in uh, my slide number seven is happening on the lunar surface. It's not a random stone circle. It's an active no. stone circle. Wow. I like again, that. Again, Maria, maybe you can answer this. Um, I ran across, again, something called... The, uh -oh. manip the manipulation of the earth currents could be directed along a ley line, directed to a stone circle, spun a few times to amp up the energy, and then project out along another ley line at a higher caliber. Uh, the, the evidence so far, and what uh, Geomance is over here, I uh, think, is that the earth currents entwine uh, the line. They're very difficult to manipulate. They will go back. To, to where they are. It's almost like Gaia, the Earth energies are far, far more powerful than us. But yes, mm -hmm. they do feed the lay system with uh, energy. So they're all kind of energetically feeding a greater system that is going around, it's believed, the world worldwide. So the lays, it was interesting, in uh, the 1970s, there was an agricultural scientist that looked into seed enhancements with, with lays and earth currents, and he concluded categorically that uh, any plant life that is sensitive does not do well on lays because energy travels too fast on a straight line, on a lay. They are highly charged uh, forces of lines that go through the earth. Oh, that's like putting too much fertilizer on your um, houseplants. Uh, exactly, and that's what, what he found. I mean, yeah, but some trees like fir trees, evergreens, they thrive on the lays, but most plant life doesn't. So he concluded that what the ancients were doing, they were kind of 
fertilizing the, the world, especially from a large sites like Stonehenge and the pyramids, but you wouldn't live on these uh, lay systems. For example, at Avebury today, there's a village there and in fact a pub as well, but you know ancient ancestor lived there their settlements were miles away miles away from these stone circles you know that's what chief do we need a break at the top of the hour here please i believe so do you handle that keith does sir keith Well, we can keep talking. They can fix it in post, as they say. Uh, Maria, that uh, business about the um, uh, not living on them, that resonates in my mind with an awful lot of uh, ancient sites, not necessarily ones they put cathedrals next to or anything, but, you know, like where Indians would gather, this kind of thing, that they wouldn't live there. They would just because uh, I happen to live in one of those places. It's the uh, yes. the little the little valley is named Del Dios because that's what they told the Spaniards when they came by that this is a place of the gods. They said we don't live here; we just come here for ceremonies. Absolutely, and that's that's the case through throughout the British Isles and Europe. Archaeologists call them clean sites, meaning they didn't even drop anything at these sites. They were revered, they were sacred, and that's because the the earth energies and the lays and the grid lines and more of the sites really does charge up the area. And many people that go to Avebury sense this and feel this and can actually feel some of the uh, energies coming out of the stones. So when you're at the center of a stone circle, you're at the center now, by that central rock on the moon or at Avebury, that's where the energy is at its strongest. And it's also at its strongest on an outlier, which Richard was talking about before he got cut off earlier. It directs the energy. And I also show how that happens at the Royal Wright Ring in Oxfordshire on one of my slides with uh, pictures to accompany this show. So it's almost like the energy mm -hmm. is being directed in the middle and to the outside. So they're the two key points. It's the heel stone at Stonehenge and the altar stone, which is an outlier. The heel stone lies outside of Stonehenge and the altar stones on the inside. They're called power points. Power points. Well, that's a familiar noise. It's uh, Maria, so it's uh, interesting. So the, the main point of the explanation about the location then is uh, they are related to, to energy. Uh, I'm not that read into ley lines and uh, the grid patterns, but what I know is that uh, telluric currents, so currents inside Earth are related to earthquakes and uh, currents are flowing from the ionosphere into Earth also may be related to earthquakes, so there's much energy ongoing there, and that might have been different so 2,000 years ago that they had a different situation than there, that those effects were stronger. That's yes, all stone circles in the British Isles are only one and a half miles away from a fault line, and that's oh, for the, the piezoelectrical wow. effect. 
So they are intimately associated with fault lines, but we see earth currents a little bit differently. We see them as, yes, being as some of them are associated with fault lines, but some are just like rivers of energy that fl flow through the landscape, and the ancients were fully aware of this. And collectively, they were known as Lung Mei to the ancient Chinese. Mm. So, so it's a equation. global phenomenon, because uh, I have, have seen uh, on photos uh, megalithic uh, dolmens in South Korea on photos, which look exactly like those in Europe and England. And is, are those circles on, also known in other regions than Europe and England? Yes, the dolmen phenomena in Korea is the largest uh, collection in the world of dolmens in any one place. And in England, in the British Isles, in Europe, the dolmen is one of the oldest monuments in the ceremonial landscape. It's a Neolithic monument, and they are nine times out of ten always sighted at the meeting point of two aquifers below the ground that's really charging that monument up. And when you have two aquifers meeting together, it generates the earth energy pattern, and this has been known by water diviners for hundreds and hundreds of years. It generates concentric circles all around it. So if you imagine the dolmen uh, energetically is surrounded by all of these circular, powerful uh, earth energies generated by the waters below. And indeed, the pyramids are sited above an aquifer, as is Avebury. Well, fast it, it, it just has a practical relevance. If you are in a situation and need uh, clean water, then it makes sense to mark your aquifer with some some large uh, object to uh, not lose it and find it again. It's, it might keep the water cleaner. Yes, they never bored wells at these sites, but they were marking the, the aquifers worldwide. That's, that's what we do now. Even when you go to Mexico, Malta's hypogeum, I'm leaving for Malta tomorrow, and the hypogeum there uh, ends in well. They're the only two places where they actually did bore the water below was in Malta. I'm very jealous about that. I figured that's where you were headed. All I heard was Malta. You're going to, going to lie, 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 lie. And there we go. That was fun. Anybody there now? Oh, oh, yeah. oh. Why? What's with the echo? I don't know. Okay. Oh. Richard was uh, trying to get back to us, and, and his connection is, is causing the echo. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Maria, could uh, you stick in a comment about the – it's fairly recent news, although I'm sure it, it wasn't the first time somebody thought that. There's some new thoughts about uh, the um, Stonehenge uh, that we're all most familiar with uh, having been moved from somewhere else. Uh, yes, I, that's uh, that's incorrect, because when you start looking at the, the very old antiquarian pictures, going back to accounts to the 12th century, they do say that the stones were there and they describe them as they are today. It was Professor uh -huh. Atkinson that moved some of the stones during his uh, reconstruction of Stonehenge uh, in, in the 1960s. But the you, you can't 
you, it's very easy to see where stones were in the south of England because, like I mentioned earlier, they're not in the earth, they're in solid chalk bedrock. So it's a bit like mm -hmm. if a stone topples, you just find the matching plug hole, the socket hole, mm -hmm. so to speak, and then you put the stone back into that socket hole. And at Stonehenge, they haven't been moved that much. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, so that that would be something we could check on the moon if there are socket holes below those stones, because mm -hmm. if those stones are some created by some natural random event like a meteorite fall onto the surface or a volcanic event, then they would not have socket holes. Uh, yes. Uh, Holger, I think you know too, just as well that there's unlikely. <laughs> Yeah, that they're unlikely to have been plugged in for, by an asteroid. Yeah. Uh, sure, but for those who are uh, still wondering. <laughs> hey, guys. Be, uh, uh, oh, hello. Guys. It's a Richard. Oh, yeah, it's Richard with a huge echo. Echo, echo. She said something with the computer and suddenly you're all, I know it's in the machine. Hmm. You've got, You've got two, two circuits, circuits open. One of them needs to close. Yeah. It only takes feedback on one of us, which isn't going to happen with people like me who are just on the phone. Hmm. Or it's Skype's fault. But, uh... The, the echo is only it's less than a second, so it's uh, not a lunar distance. It's somewhere on Earth. Okay. How, how do you hear me? Mm -hmm. It sounds like a Twilight Zone episode, but that's kind of entertaining. <laughs> that's, a well, that's sort of appropriate, isn't it? Yeah, appropriate. <laughs> I have the same thought. Daddy, I'm in the wall. Wall, wall. Good, no echo. Testing one, two, three. Better, better. The, the pan pots are all in the middle, Keith. I can hear everybody. It's clear. Yeah, it's clear. We can hear you, Richard. Yeah, but now I'm hearing of high-pitched wine. Uh, mm. We're not hearing that. No. Mm. But if I hear it, it's going out on the air. And I... Oh, you... Echo collapse. It's a collapsed echo. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. Do you have Keith, another head? Is, is no, it's got to be the Skype program. Do we have two open? That would do it. That would do it. That's happened to Robert before. Keith, check that. Well, I'm sure he is. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to ask a question of Maria. This is Barb. Hi, Barbara. Okay. Um, Maria, how yes. many of the stone circles uh, in the British Isles, the extended British Isles, are of approximately the same, I think it was 30-foot diameter. I'm not sure if it was 30 meters or 30 feet. I think 30 yes. feet. 
Yes, around 10 metres. Um, well, the majority of those are in Wales and Ireland, and there's about 20 or 25 that I've located. In Ireland, it's quite interesting because they're not in isolation, meaning you have the stone circle, the same diameter as the one on the moon with roughly the same stones in, let's say 12 to 14, as was mentioned uh, earlier. And they are then associated with another stone circle a few miles away. So could it be on the lunar surface? If indeed they're like the stone circles here, we could be just seeing one stone circle as part of what's called a multiple stone circle complex. Because in Ireland, all of those 10 meter stone circles are associated with another one so many miles away. So I think we're just starting to see maybe the, the past stone circle megalithic era on the moon. Right, that was my next question was, is, is this the only stone circle that we have found so far on the moon? Good point. If you look at my mm -hmm. item number nine, I actually uh, found uh, two other circles on really? a similar size crater, which are a bit less precise than those, uh, than that one here, Apollo 12. Uh, mm -hmm. Item nine, that is about um, 10 kilometer west of uh, Apollo or south, northwest of the Apollo 12 site on the same uh, raw image of from Chandrayaan 2, if you download it. And mm -hmm. they are the same size. They are, uh, it's a twin circle. So both circles are attached to each other. And uh, there's a third one on the bottom of the crater there. And the crater is the same size as the Surveya 3 or Apollo 12 crater. The individual circle diameter is the same of about 10 meters. The stones are of the same height. It's, uh, you know, the, the configuration of Go Gobekli Tepe is like that. Do we know if it's the same size or close to? Um, I don't know Tepe much about huge. But, the, yeah, but the individual stones of Gobekli Tepe, they, they could match, I guess, what I've seen on photos, that they are bet between one and two meter height, so between three and six feet height. That would be a match there. They are not that large as Stonehenge. Yeah, Gobekli Tepe and Kettle Hayek are huge. They didn't realize that at first, but there's, yeah, they just, the more they, the more they dig or found the ground, the more they find. There's an awful lot there. Yeah, the site is huge, but the, there's multiple circles within that site. That's what I was kind of thinking about. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I Yeah, no, I, I have no idea what size they are. Yeah. But, but at so least the individual stones, they would match in size, what I've seen on the Gobekli Tepic photos for the, for the single stones, and they would are of the same scale. Well, back to Maria. Maria, aren't those uh, T-shaped uh, pillars at uh, the, the aforementioned two sites, aren't they almost unique? I mean, it's, uh, I don't know any place else where there's T-shaped pillars like that. Yeah, it is. It is what's claimed to be, you know, the oldest uh, megalithic site in the world. And they are quintessentially from that area so you don't find mm -hmm. that type of and also they're stylized with carvings on them that can be in, in low light or in, in fire mm -hmm. they seem to like they move so they carve mm -hmm. the stones so that they have this amazing animated effect to them as well so that's unique to that landscape well and, the, uh, and most cave paintings no. yeah. 
but the, the T, yeah, here on the moon, we don't have most likely not the T shapes, but the T shapes I've heard are also on uh, Mallorca or Menorca, one of the two islands in the Mediterranean Sea, west of, uh, northwest of Malta. Oh, they're, they're similar, yeah. but again, they're not stylized in the, the way that they became animated. Uh, yes, and yes, one yes, thing yes. that they, most stone circles have in common is the alignments to the, the sun. And I was wondering and mentioned to Richard, I wonder if the stone circle there and, you, and the, the panel here may be able to elaborate has these alignments to the sun or even maybe to Earth or Mars. Yeah, towards Earth, uh, the Apollo 12 site is near the equator of the moon, three degrees below the equator, so almost equator, you could say, and mm -hmm. a bit to the left. If you look at the moon, it's about halfway to the left side of the moon. That's the Apollo 12 site. So it, it's facing Earth, but not precisely. Uh, yeah. And the, the north alignment, uh, the photos, uh, I have, or we all have here on the website, uh, north aligned, maybe two degrees off north, but in general they are north aligned. Uh, that could oh, that help. could, you know, the, the moon has gotten banged around a bit. I mean, they didn't name it the lunar heavy bombardment for nothing. <laughs> well, we know, some, we know some sites are aligned with constellations like uh, Angkor Wat with Draco and Newgrange with Cygnus. Oh, absolutely. Okay, I can hear you guys again. We can okay. hear you. You're a little loud, Richard, relative to the everybody else. Really? It's Not according to my ears. It's fine. Okay. We can yeah, hear you without echo. All good. Yeah. This is so bizarre. It's something in the computer. It's not on the board. It's in the computer. It's some kind of... I think we've been hacked. Well, you've been hacked. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what I meant when I said we, you know, we on the show. Okay, so what did I miss? Everything. Uh, a, 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 a bounteous big dose of Maria Wheatley and... Uh, uh, Barbara, I don't want to leave anybody out. And Holger has just been soldiering along. I think he covered most things. Say, ask him something and find out. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. Okay, Keith. Uh, you've got other things totally on my second machine. What do you want me to do? Hmm. I don't hear Keith at all. And I don't see him typing. You may have an either or switch there somewhere. Now he's typing. This is th this show is not yeah. fit for air, and I'm oh, not. Should... Hmm. It could be edited. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. No, it's been good. I believe Richard. It's been good. It's been. It's good. been a really good show. I mean, we missed you, but you know there was a lot. There's been a lot of real okay. content here. There's more. I yeah, I I need to get uh, something changed. My screen's changed. I have I have no way of knowing why it looks like the way it does. I well, we confirm you can continue. I have a question yes. for Richard. I think would be the best to answer, and that is how close to the stone circle on the moon did um, the Apollo 12 lander land, and did 
Alan Bean or any of the other astronauts who were there on the surface ever remark about this stone circle? No. And so the Apollo 12 landed uh, almost perfectly west of it, uh, of the circle, 100 meter for 300 feet west of it, about uh, 10 meter north. And they, uh, the approach trajectory from doing the landing was coming from the east. The module was coming from the east, was flying towards a large crater, and then making a curve north of the large crater around the rock wing, mm. and then curving to the left to land uh, behind in the west of the rock wing. So like they evaded it and were aware of it because uh, Apollo 12 landed at the same 100 meter distance towards the stone circle as Surveyor 3 in 1967, mm -hmm. two years before. And, and none of the Apollo 12 astronauts ever remarked when they came back about it? Not directly. We have one from the transcripts. I found some interesting section. Uh, maybe, Ron, you can uh, read that section where they uh, uh, might have... Okay, Keith is doing something with my screens and I can't find anything. Keith, hmm. do you want me to, to take over my Mars machine? Because I, I don't hear him. Well, we don't hear him either. But it's airing right. live. I just heard here in the chat it's it's streaming to uh, to the public stream. Okay, I need to yeah. to. Okay, let me do this. Uh, yeah, we've been rolling with it. Well, this is no way to do a radio show. Uh, good heavens! No. Mm. We'll work. It's not Another October surprise. Another October surprise. Say again? Yeah. Another October surprise. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Okay. All right, let me try to get everything back here. You okay. think it was yesterday on the 13th. That's, That's what I took. Yes, yes. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm trying to find the transcript on my, here it is, here it is, okay. Um, Okay, I okay, Holger, uh I've got the transcript in front of me. The um I was looking for one thing in addition to what you said, but they Oh, here you go. This is what I think uh anybody listening. Okay. Uh this is during an EVA, you know, they're so they're soldiering around there and picking up rocks. And um uh Alan Dean says Look at that huge boulder out there at boy, I wish we could get all, go over there. And Conrad says, Where? Bean says, Look at that boulder. Conrad says, Where? Uh Bean says, Straight ahead, see it there? Uh Conrad pointing. That one? Bean, no. Conrad, where? Bean, over the top of the hill. Pause. Conrad, don't see where you're looking. Bean says, right on the other side of the he means crater, I guess, about 200 yards that way. See that big boulder sitting up there? The biggest one we've seen since we've been here. See it? Conrad says, I don't see which one you're referring to. That one right there? Bean says, yeah, yeah. Oh, 
these down in here are bigger than that. Look at that. And they, they're arguing about boulders. Well, if you look at the aerial shots that uh, Holger has so amazingly collected, uh, you'll see it on most of the pictures. I'd say it, it left kind of to the left of the circle. There is this, obviously, there's a really big boulder <laughs> sitting over there. And that has to be the one he was pointing at. So they were looking right at the stone rig. Hmm. They were looking yeah. at a boulder right outside the stone ring, right? Right. And if you look at one of the areas, anybody else see what it's it's not a particularly amazing looking boulder. It's just a big potato sitting there, but it's you know, there's clearly a very large wait, wait, wait. are you talking about my time capsule? No, or are you no, not about something on the rim of the crater. Oh, it's as big as the circle. I mean it's big. You know, it's just uh yeah, it's outside the circle. But oh, well, that has it. nothing to do with with the circle and the and the alignments and all that. And I uh, see no, that on I've seen that on the rim of the crater in some of Bean's surface shots. Right, and yet there yet Conrad is claiming he can't see it, and it's almost it almost reads like he was trying to misdirect him away from it. Don't look over there because that That's is the weird. same direction you'd look to see the circle. That's weird. You can see it on, on my item one. My item one is set, and there you see a large rock on the upper right from the circle. Uh, that is the largest one in the whole image there, almost almost half the size of the lunar lander there. And the situation was that they were, the two were coming back, Alan Bean and uh, Pete Conrad were co returning to the lander on the right, uh, and they were standing at a crater with... Uh, with large rocks in it, just natural rocks in the crater, and uh, mm -hmm. the circle was about 50 meters in the distance, and I, I think they could have seen it, but I could not find any photo uh, where the circle is visible. So the, the right. photos point in that direction, but uh, it could be that the circle was slightly below, below the crater rim, and that is the reason it was not visible in the photo, because the camera was mounted on the breast of the astronaut. So it, the camera was lower than the head, the eyes of the astronaut. So they, they say, oh, no, well, eyes, they, you, you can see the circle in the background of several of the bean shots, but, yes, nothing uh, yeah, closer, but nothing closer than the surveyor spacecraft, which is a couple hundred feet away to the southeast. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, from the surveyor uh, three sites, they took photos where we can see it. But uh, just this minute, we were talking about the situation when they were returning to the lander and uh, were much nearer to the circle. Yeah, there and... there is nothing close up to the circle. They, In fact, if you go and look at my image number nine, number nine, okay. Everybody got number nine? Yeah, this, this is the annotated. Map. This is the uh, low pass 13 miles image from LRO. And you can see it's annotated. There's Surveyor 3 in the bottom right. You see that? Click on it, it gets bigger. You see the Intrepid Descent stage in the middle, upper middle. Then you see that crater just to the right of where it says stage. Feedback, please. Yes. Okay. Well, the circle is under descent. Time capsule is the very bright, large thing above the T in stage. Oh, now, so time capsule is a big word that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah it's the box, the time capsule, whatever. Okay. Now, if you, go, if you look at the background, you see those dark lines that meander 
from Surveyor up around Block Crater and then up to the top, then they move toward the Lem? Yeah. This is critical. This is absolutely critical. This was taken in um, um, late 2021, I believe, which is many years after Apollo 12. The footprints will be there a million years. They go nowhere near the circle or the box slash time capsule. Yeah. Nowhere. Weird. Now, unless someone doctored the picture and they took out their surface footprints going to the circle, then leaving it, which, of course, is not above what NASA, you know, has done with other things. Anyway, we're at the bottom of the hour. So let me do this and we shall return. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're on the other side of midnight on a very turbulent show, which is not going the way it was supposed to. Hang with us. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on a very turbulent Saturday, October 14th, the day of the annular eclipse. And we'll get to the eclipse. We've got about, uh, oh, 90 minutes to go. Hopefully the second 90 minutes will be a lot more um, calm than the first 90 minutes. Anyway, let me let me go back to my panel. Okay, guys, we're all on the air again. Hello? <laughs> oh, don't do that. <laughs> We're all here, Richard. That's bad. <laughs> okay, I want to direct everybody back to the images, okay? Uh, hang on one second. Let me do something here. Okay. Um, okay, there we are. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Anyway, if you look at the footprints, 
I mean, one of the first things that occurred to me when I looked at the Marty McGuire site was, well, did the guys do this? Because part of the legacy of explorers, um, um, you know, Ed Mitchell wrote a whole book about his Apollo uh, 14 adventures, and he called it the way of the explorers. There is a tradition in exploring you know, remote, inaccessible places on the earth that the explorer leaves something like a cairn or a rock pile or a circle of stones, you know, somewhere, you know, to say kind of like going back to World War II, Kilroy was here. So my first thought was, okay, the Apollo 12 guys literally built a little monument to mark their passing. But if you look at the image, you know, my, uh, let's see, what number was it again? I think it's number nine. If you look carefully at that, it's it, there's nothing that shows you that they ever went near the circle. Now, why is that a problem? Well, for one thing, it solves the problem if we don't think of this as a doctored picture, that they not only didn't go near it, they didn't build it. They didn't, in their copious non-spare time, in their, you know, EVAs, uh, quietly build this thing because you'd see all kinds of roughened soil, you'd see tracks leading to it, you'd see tracks leading away. So unless the picture has been doctored, which I really don't think, they did not go anywhere near this, which opens up an extraordinary mystery. Because as Holger has found out, and in my research I found out independently, this thing is damn difficult, if not impossible, to see unless you know exactly where it is. And when you look at the descent profile of the Surveyor 3 spacecraft in one of those links, those uh, two links that I posted from uh, uh, Drew Ex Machina, the landing site that was picked for Surveyor 3 was 2.8 miles away from where Surveyor 3 actually landed. That was the error in the navigation from, you know, deep space tracking and onboard inertial measurement units and all that in Surveyor in April of, uh, of uh, 1967. So then the question is, how the hell did Surveyor manage to get down within a couple hundred feet of this extraordinary construct? because its own inherent navigation made that essentially impossible if you believe the published data on Surveyor 3. Then you have another conundrum, because you've got the decision by NASA to land Surveyor, I'm sorry, Apollo 12, in a pinpoint landing demonstration following the five-mile overshoot by Apollo 11, and Armstrong having to take control to, you know, go over a field of boulders on the on the side of a crater. And then you have them landing literally within 200 feet, give or take, of Surveyor on the opposite rim of the crater. And as Holger has said, when you look at the reconstruction of the trajectory, the trajectory of Apollo 12 falling down under the retro thrust of the descent engine makes a nice curve around the rim of the crater and lands on the other side. And at one point in the transcript, 
which Holger and Ron and I have you know looked through at some level, uh, being actually uh, Conrad actually says at one point in the transcript, he says, well, you know, I kind of actually wondered if I should land in the middle of the crater, which, of course, would have been put to much closer, but it would have blown all kinds of dust from the descent engine onto surveyor, ruining any effort to see what, you know, two and a half years of being in the vacuum on the moon had done to it and contaminated hopelessly the pieces they brought back, the camera, the scoop, the cabling, and all that. So he says he opted to land on the, and someone's typing, I can hear it, he opted to land on the rim, which is very good, because not only did they not blow dust on the surveyor, they did not blow dust on the circle. So now we have a huge problem, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, how did NASA manage to land twice within walking distance of astronauts in backpacks on this site next to this astonishing construct and do it by chance? It's Any thoughts? For the, for the, for the 1967 technology, it's a mystery. And there's another... Uh, Conundrum for the Soviet You have, you have a knack, Holger, for understatement. It's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah, and, <laughs> I agree, yeah. And Surveyor 3. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, let's, let's, let's not pass that by. If it's yeah. impossible, let's go back to Sherlock Holmes. You know, once you've eliminated the, impossible, the possible, you have to go for the impossible. So, what is the impossible explanation for Surveyor literally landing up? within a couple hundred feet of this amazing breakthrough construction. There must be some additional technology we don't know about yet. Or maybe Surveyor 3 had help. There have been rumors for decades of a secret space program. Remember that? Sure. Did the secret space program set surveyor down in this location despite NASA's telemetry because finding this thing was crucial for the next phase, which was to land men there and to go and look at what was in the box. Because again, the, the, uh, what they call the CEP, circular error probability, makes it impossible that they could be targeting for 2.8 miles away and land here. Now, and something's the, wrong. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, the, the landing ellipse, uh, well, the first one was about five kilometer diameter from Earth, and then they had a more precise one after or during the uh, trajectory correction during the flight. They could limit it then to one kilometer uh, wide and two kilometer length. But even that would be too large to get this precise landing in, exactly. the, in the 200 meter diameter crater, surveyor crater. And then there was this double hop on landing of the robotic probe. So, so can, we, can, we, can we kind of all agree to talk about feet and not meters? Most people have yeah. no idea what a meter is. 
So let's yeah, talk six, feet. All right. Yeah, the so 600, 600 diameter feet. So they are 650 feet. This crater is 650 feet. Okay, let me let me go further out on this limb. If you look at the wide angle Chandrayaan 2 image, which I did not post because I was trying to make uh, you know Keith's life a bit easier, it turns out that this crater is not a round crater. It is square. It's a very heavily eroded square, and the sides are to the northwest, the southeast, the southwest, and the northeast at about a 40-degree 40, 40 angle to the frame. You're still looking at that frame that I you know, called attention to, which is item number – let me go back here. Okay. Item number nine. nine. Number nine. Okay. So this to me, and Ron and I had this discussion, you know, mm. a few days ago, this to me looks like an ancient, ancient foundation of a 650 foot wide square building, which I think was an ancient temple and the circle and the time capsule was meant to memorialize this structure, which was located, it's about three degrees south of the lunar equator, and I think 23 uh, west, if I remember my coordinates. Yeah, yeah, correct. Okay, so if this is a buried building, and someone directed NASA, not once, but twice, to go to it, they must have had some help. The question is, was it ET help with spaceships and anti-gravity and all that? Or was it secret Earthling space program help, the secret space program, which also has anti-gravity and spaceships that are real spaceships and not rockets and capsules and junk like that? In other words, are we looking at a deliberate ritual? We go back to what NASA loves to do is rituals, and when Conrad claimed he couldn't see what Bean was pointing toward, it was part of the ritual of not on an open mic giving any clue as to why they were really there. Now, we come to the next part of the mystery. Anybody have any questions on that part? Well, I'd just like to add here, Richard, I think you're really onto something there because that's exactly what was happening at places like Avebury. The first structures were wooden and rectangular, predating all the stone uh, phases by five to six hundred years. Then they got the same, if you imagine the building was there, just like you're saying, then they memorialized it by making the stone circles at Avebury. They mm -hmm. did that here. Well, well, the uh, difference here is instead of a few hundred years, given the rate of erosion on the moon and the thickness of the regolith, meaning you can see their footprints, you can see uh, they were very, very leery of descending even a little bit down into this crater. You can see that from the transcript. And they walked parallel to the uh, rim, working their way down slowly because they expected that the regolith, i.e. lunar soil, would get deeper and deeper and deeper, and it was firm enough that they had no problems. But that means this is a very, very, very old 
ancient buried building several million years old. If it's dead. Uh, Richard? Yeah? I don't, I don't know about the um, million, but um, I'm not disputing it. I'm just saying uh, I, I've been looking at the rest of one of Holger's uh, strips. I should, I mean, I did it from scratch too, but it's, you know, one of the ones he found of there. And elsewhere on that same film strip that has the circle and surveyor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, there is a big square buildings foundation. And that's what I've been working with. I can't tell you the, uh, the distance and all that other stuff, but it's on the same darn frame. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, well that's a terrible cheese. You have another. Well, all right, all right. I, can, uh, I can circulate see, the picture, but it, the point is, yeah, and, uh, Maria's I, right. You're right. That sounds. That sounds and, good. And I had a cursory look at a much larger um, LRO mosaic. One, the remember they had two altitudes, 31 miles, and then down to 13 miles, and the resolution yeah. on 13 miles is really good. And I okay. found all kinds of ancient architecture, you know miles away from this site mm -hmm. and even closer and then much farther. In other words, this was in this model a complex mm -hmm. and the surveyor site was somehow special, which is why it got a circular hinge with alignments. And now we go back to my my other image, which is uh, uh, item number uh, you can start with 11, and 13 is the one that <clears throat> I'm really intrigued with because that obviously, that kind of geometry, that kind of alignment, that's not accidental. Now we get to the dating of when this circle, memorializing a much more ancient you know, architecture at this site on the moon, separated by millions of years, when was the circle actually constructed? Now, I've got someone working on the celestial alignments, Greg Ahrens, and I told him very wisely <clears throat> not to try to rush the, the calculations and the measurements for tonight, that we would do another show later, maybe next weekend, maybe beyond, depending upon how long it takes to really work them up. Because what you're looking for is ritual stars and asterisms that are fondly familiar to NASA that we know, like Orion's Belt, like Laura Love This, Sirius, like Arcturus, like Regulus, like the Sun, etc., and to see when, in terms of the Moon's motions, either forward or backward, by a hundred thousand years, when those stones, those alignments, mark key risings and settings around the lunar horizon, which would give us like a celestial clock where we don't have to do any work. The program are now so sophisticated that they do it all in the computer. And unlike um, other previous archaeo astronomers, you don't have to do it with a slide rule or do it with a hand calculator. It's all done in the program. And that's what Greg is working on. And hopefully by this coming weekend, he will have some results. I have a different methodology for honing in on how young compared to the ancient buried 
building slash temple, I think the circle is. And my bet is somewhere between 26,000 years, that sounds familiar, right? And about 30,000. Why do I pick that time frame? Because it's one processional cycle before us when an equivalent high-tech civilization to ours could have developed the kind of technology required to go there, not with rockets, but with real anti-gravity, landed, built a monument pointing out the time capsule that they left for their descendants at the end of the next processional cycle. It's also about as old as the Bosnian pyramid, I believe. Yeah, well, that's only, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes, that's one of the reasons I picked that date. Uh Now, here's here's where things get weird. Because if you look at my close-ups of the box, uh, 12 and 15, it looks, and Ron agrees, like something attacked it, either with a projectile weapon or with some kind of energy weapon. And so the reason that Pete and Alan landed there for current NASA, when they got close enough, they could see there was no reason to go down to it because it had already been looted and mostly destroyed. The reason they went there to get the library, the disc, the time capsule, the parchments, the te- the, the, the stones, whatever, all right? And they bypassed it, and none of the close-up imagery from that north side of the crater, after Block Crater, is available anywhere on any NASA website. And believe me, I've looked. It's like they never – they decided suddenly after taking thousands of photographs, you know, around the southern part of of the crater, they just decided not to take any pictures at all from the north side going back to the limb, which, of course, is not plausible in any mission planning by NASA that I've ever been exposed to. So I think someone came before Apollo 12, looted the time capsule. The two guys, Bean and Conrad, looked at it, decided it wasn't worthwhile even going to look, and they just moved on and came home. They, they had 20 minutes left in their four-hour EVA at that time, uh, at the time when they arrived at the module again. So they were 20 minutes ahead, and they could have used that time. And it was like on the way. Out, it was absolutely on the You're right. And, and, they had... and, they, and they say in the transcript, we have tons of film. Now, why did that come up? Because they had a problem with one of the magazines, magazine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, magazine in the, in the film camera, the Hasselblads. They had a problem with one of the cameras. They had to change the magazine to the other camera. And at one point in that part of the transcript, uh, Conrad says to Bean, or Bean says to camera uh, to uh, to Conrad, "Don't worry, we got tons of film." And there are only like yeah. a dozen shots between that statement and where they get the block crater, and suddenly they take no more pictures i don't buy it for a second i think this is nasa censorship so we can't get photos from 10 feet away or one foot 
because they already could see that it had been damaged and there was nothing to go and retrieve. Uh, Richard? And there's evidence for what you're saying in the transcript, if you're reading it with, a, with one eyebrow lifted, like I was doing this afternoon. The, uh, uh, there's, numbers, uh, there's numerous mentions there, and I'm sure there are in other uh, transcripts from uh, other missions, uh, where they mention, uh, they reference photos you know, AS dash, what you want to call it. And uh, in several occasions, it mentions that the picture that they're referencing you to, which is the one that you would get if you went looking for it, uh, was actually a composite that actually somebody whose name is usually listed there uh, took this image and this image and this image in order to get a, uh, either to do a sandwich like you like to do where you, superimpose one over the other to intensify it or... Um, well, you reduce the, the noise uh, by doing that. Yeah, some say that, yes. And, it's or, not, or, that's, that's standard digital imaging techniques. You reduce okay, fine. noise well, me, by, by the square root of the number of images you stack on top of each other. Yeah, just like everybody's smartphone these days when they take selfies. Uh, the um, It's true. That's what they do. Uh, no, the made up from, in other words, a little tiny un, not unacknowledged mosaic of an area. So they have in the text there an indication that they did fudge with images in order to get a better one, you know, take the, because they took a lot of, you know, very similar poses and so forth, like all the pictures of the lander. And I think that's a clue to what they were doing, because a lot of the Chit chat between them reads like uh, a, almost a script, you know, like they they were going through a pattern. If you see something, you know, refer around it. Don't talk about. Uh, no, I'm not going to mention her. Uh, do it. Do, do oh. an Emily Dickinson. Come on. Oh dear. She's, she's yeah. the mascot of our show. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, I there's evidence of that in there as well. So I, I believe that the possibility that a uh, some footprints got erased or something like that is there, and I hate to say it because that's not usually the way that I go at go at analyzing these things. But from what you see in the transcripts, uh, it kind of sounds like that was on the table you know, or that was in the toolbox. Anyway, that's all. Well, why else would they have gone here? You know, it's like you know Occam's razor. The least outrageous hypothesis is, A, NASA knew about this probably from sacred texts. Remember, mm. you know, Masons galore is NASA's mm. or us. B, they sent two spacecraft, one an unmanned, obviously to check out and see if what was there in the text was there, was there. Holger's been trying to find the surveyor imagery of the same area. It should be blatantly visible. And yet, it, it's not in any record I've seen. And mm -hmm. I look. Holger, do you agree? You know that the military took over NASA in 1965, four years yeah, before we went yeah. to the moon. Before. Yeah, Go read well, the Washington Post, 1965, and you're going to find an article in there where they were talking about how the unions at NASA were upset because key positions were being given to retired military personnel. And the only reason you yeah, give remember, remember, I was I was there. I was in NASA. I was a consultant. I was. I don't care, Rich. Shut up. 
Okay, oh, I'm trying to make a point. You. These guys <laughs> still had their oath of secrecy, oath of allegiance, and they were going not going to do anything but what they were told. And they were there, put in those positions, so these guys could say, "Put your finger on this, hide this, don't let this out." And that was in 1965. They knew what they were doing, and now they're pulling the same crap now with this whole UAP UFO stuff. And they're trying to stick that back in the hole by just lying to Congress because there's nobody in Congress that has enough technical expertise to be able to understand what these guys are telling them. We're in a state of flux right now in this world. Everything's starting to fall and go to hell, and these guys don't want it going in a direction that they don't want it going in because they are about to go to jail for all of the crap they pulled for all these years. But they don't want to do it. You got to sit back and say, what else is going on besides these little things that are popping up? Yeah, we're looking at the moon. We're starting to see stuff that we didn't get to see back then. Somebody's letting the cat out the bag, and it's time for us to capitalize on this. And we're two minutes out from the break. So finish what you're doing. <laughs> do I have your permission, Mr. Morgan? Yes, you do. Passion is good. Great words. Great okay, words. we are literally at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I want to talk about Alan Bean in his other incarnation. I take it that Andrew is not with us? He may be I don't think but... Andrew is with us. Um, okay. I tried to get him, but something was happening with my Skype, which also muted me, but didn't show I was muted. Amazing, yes. All these little technical issues. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you what, let's do this, okay? Let me remind everyone, you're at the bottom of the hour. Actually, it's the top of the hour. It's midnight. Here in the land of enchantment, which means we are now into Sunday morning. My guests to numerous dimension, go to the website and you'll see all their names and their excellent bios. We shall all return right after this message from our sponsor, which is you guys. Stay tuned. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Mike Live to get access to exclusive member benefits. It always is live. At 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. 
Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this now um, Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. I see that Andrew has joined us, and just in time, because I'm about to uh, introduce another interesting wrinkle in this really extraordinary mystery. Who built this circle? When was it built? How many people knew in NASA? Is the circle and the time capsule the absolutely destroyed and opened and, you know, riffled, purloined, sabotaged, uh, bankrolled, whatever term you want, is it really the fact that we went there and because it had already been opened and destroyed, there was nothing there for the Apollo 12 astronauts to find? So that brings me back to, let me go here, to item number 14. Because as part of uh, putting together the show for Coast, I wanted to use uh, an image <clears throat> basically from Apollo 12 from uh, Bean, a painting to show the comparison with the extraordinary colors of the Apollo missions that are now showing up in the uh, archives over and over and over again. And if you go to this particular number, which is, let me do this again, uh, item number 14, you will find a montage of three images. Surveyor 1's first color image from the surface of the moon, which was again earlier in uh, 1966. Then you've got um, the Surveyor 1 footpad with the color chart, which allows you to calibrate accurate color. And then in the upper left, you've got an Alan Bean painting. And there they are in the photographs that they could not take because they had kind of taken a clandestine uh, timer with them so they could set up one of the cameras on a remote uh, tripod and then have a photograph by remote control of both astronauts by surveyor. That was their kind of secret plan. They didn't let NASA know. And they lost the timer, apparently, in the bottom of the container they used to uh, put their rock samples, so they couldn't do that. So when Bean gets back to Earth years later, he paints this amazing painting with the real colors of the moon, with the lunar module on the rim of Surveyor Crater, the two astronauts, Alan Bean and Pete Conrad, standing next to Surveyor like they were going to try to do with a real photograph. And look very carefully in the upper right portion, about halfway between the bottom and the top, which, of course, is space and the glass above the moon. Look at the geometry in that section, far right-hand side, halfway up, of Alan Bean's painting. 
because there is the circle and the time capsule immortalized in Bean's own painting in an extraordinary either Emily Dickinson fashion or in a very deep, dredged up uh, right brain memory. Because remember, he was an artist. So if he was censored through programming, brainwashing, so he could not remember consciously, did he remember unconsciously and put it in this painting of geometry where the circle is exactly on the moon? Andrew? Yeah, I can answer that. If you go back to your number 10, Richard. Okay. And tap on that and look at the left-hand image. This is, this is the one that Holger found. Yeah. And circled the beautiful tetrahedron. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you get out of that and quickly go back to – I mean it's been cool if we could put them side by side. But then go back to 14 and then look at his painting. It's almost exact. I I know he's put the two astronauts in the foreground, et cetera. But when you read about Alan Bean, he is very meticulous – or he was very meticulous. He used um, maquettes or like models. He would set up lighting to get it perfect, but he was also using NASA photography. There's no doubt. And I think, Richard, this is a direct lift from that image. I really Yeah, I, I absolutely do too. Now let me go to something that Ron and I have been talking about <clears throat> for a couple of weeks on this because Ron's initial model for the circle was that it was the tops of some buried building where you only saw the gargoyles or the ramparts or whatever would be sticking up, maybe the lightning rods. Okay, And he and I went back and forth a, a little bit and I, I think I gently pointed out, at least I hope I did it gently, that that model doesn't quite fit. If you go to, let me go to, okay, let's go to number 11, okay? Um, Maria talked about this earlier, how circles on Earth are not perfect circles. They're lopsided, and I missed, because I couldn't hear you guys, you know, what her explanation was. Um, and you don't have to reiterate it, because I can kind of, you know, figure out what it might be. Let me give you one of my interpretations. One of the reasons that I think this circle is about 30,000 years old is because if you were to take stones, just just lunar rocks, and build a cairn on the moon, on the regolith, you just put them down, okay, and then you let 30,000, give or take, years elapse, you can see... Uh, like Blocky Crater and a few others on the landscape that are really new and fresh. What you don't see, of course, is the amount of energy, which I actually calculated, required to produce a crater the size of Blocky Crater, which is a bit larger than the circle. Turns out it's about a ton of TNT equivalent. One ton of TNT now, we're all familiar with terrorist bombings and all that, and on Earth, a ton of TNT can destroy a building, okay? What happens on the moon in an airless environment when something only a few, like, I think it's about 50, 60 feet away, if a ton of TNT from an impacting meteor were to strike the, the surface of the moon, it would cause 
shockwaves. And what would the shockwaves do? Cause a tremor in the regolith. You literally would have sound waves, intense sound waves, transmitted through the very loose and fluffy regolith. Now, this circle is built on the slope about the same uh, distance below the rim of Surveyor Crater as Surveyor is, and it's tilted like Surveyor by between 12 and 15 degrees. Now, we know from other observations of the moon that when you have close impacts, the surface regolith, because of the shock waves, it moves, it creeps, it becomes a little avalanche, just a few inches, and then it stops. And then you have another impact farther away, maybe much bigger, and those shock waves cause ripples, sound waves to go through the moon, through the regolith, and the loose soil, the loose regolith, vibrates more, and the rocks, which are not on the level, but they're on a slant, they slide gently further downhill. When you look at the context of this circle, and you look at the context of 30,000 years, give or take, my proposal for why this circle is not a circle, but is in fact deformed, it's deformed on the upper left, which is directly away from downslope into the crater. And I think the amount of slippage of stones placed as markers, as celestial alignments on the surface in this period of time, literally you're seeing the creep, the vibrational, you know, sliding little mini avalanches that moved the stones on the upper part slightly downhill compared to the stones on the southern part. What do you think? I, I would not uh, focus too much about the precision because on Earth, uh, those circles look the same. They are also not perfectly circular. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. So say, say that again. On Earth, uh, similar size circles are also not perfectly uh, geometrically circles, so wait, I would wait. not focus to... You, wait, 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 wait. You, you mean here on Earth, right? Yeah, on Earth, yeah. So okay, I, well, it, here's, my, here's, 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 the, here's the final leap of logic. It's not a leap. What if the circles on Earth were patterned after the one on the moon, and they thought because it was done by the gods, however the information came to them, that circles need to be oblong. They need to be ellipses. They don't need to be perfect circles because the original coming to them by way of either texts or language or visits from ETs or photographs they were shown or whatever ancient archive they were part of, they thought they had to be not circular but slightly oblong. In other words, both models are plausible until we have additional information. The, the old memories Buzz Aldrin was talking about in his uh, 1996 book, Encounter with Tiber. Well, that was, that was the novel that uh, Aldrin wrote, Encounter with Tiber, when he came yeah. back from the moon. Yeah. Which possibly... Go ahead, Maria. 
And Alexander Tom pointed out in 1967 that most stone circles are uh, ellipse shape or a flattened circle or an egg shape. They are very rarely actually circular. So that fits in with the stone circle models over here. Well, it's uh, it's one of those which came first, the chicken or the egg. Because if, yeah. if we're positing that NASA had previous knowledge from some ancient archive source, you know, secret societies, ancient libraries, whatever, and it knew what was there and it went to get get the goods, you know, the the library, and found that it had already been purloined, open, you know, burgled. It's also possible if there is 30,000 years between now and then, that in the last several thousand years on Earth, other contact with either family or ET showed ancient Europeans something like this, and they modeled their circles that were not circles because that's what they thought they should all look like because an incredibly supreme authority had shown them what they look like on the moon. But of course, the interstitial stuff, where it was, what its purpose was. All, in other words, there's a huge amount of lost information, which unless we find more libraries, we'll never be able to reconstruct here on Earth. Could be that okay. they remembered uh, the ritual of creating these irregular circles and repeated it without knowing the real purpose of it in, from the past. Uh, Oh, I don't believe that either. In which I excuse me, both of you are missing that, that whoever it was, they weren't using our geometry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was earth based, all about uh proportional systems. Works fine, but it's for it's a different usage. And the earth itself isn't round, you know, it's the what they call your oblate spheroid. And the point is they would, uh, that would be just as likely incorporated into the design of these things as something artificially perfect, like the kind of circle that we expect to see from the Greeks or something. Uh, that uh, you know, it's just, it was just a difference in perspective, I think. Because if they were able to do that kind of work, they certainly could have positioned it precisely. Are you Maybe talking about are you talking about the circle on the moon or those on earth? Any of them. Any of them because the mindset behind it was proportionally proportionally um aligned not well, wait, 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 rigid wait. geometry. I know you always think that ge I, geometry is rigid and and perfect. It's not. Of course geometry is rigid and perfect. It all comes down to end use. Ask yourself, exactly. ask, ask yourself, why would a high-tech civilization create an, a lopsided circle when they, could, that's, so, when they could survey it and produce an absolute accurate you know, circle? There's only two explanations. One is it was designed to be lopsided, all right, yeah. which is your model. And my model is it was perfectly you know, circular in, in the beginning, and because of erosion – and shock waves, the regolith, remember, these are not deep foundational things. They're sitting on the surface. We know from, from other examples, including surveyors landing itself, it slid several feet downhill after the landing, which brings up another point. Mm -hmm. The surveyor, go ahead. Who's that? 
It's Kintia. Hi, Kintia. Hi, sweetie. So I just want to postulate there's another possibility of why the one on Earth and the one on the moon could be the shapes that they are. And it's not that one is imitating the other, but rather that the designers are tuning into the same source of inspiration. Bingo. Okay, that's possible. But then you have to say to yourself, why was the circle on the moon, if my model is wrong, which I'm perfectly willing to admit it could be, why was it not a perfect circle? And here comes the potential answer. Because if it's, in other words, ask yourself, why would you design a circle on another planet pointing at that big thing, the time capsule, and then have, you know, 11 other stones in the perimeter? Because there are 12. Is it an accident that there are 12 hours on a clock? Is it supposed to be a clock, a celestial clock? And the only way that would work would be with the, with the green lines. In other words, is each of those lines, those alignments, in fact pointing at a specific celestial object, a planet, an asterism, which is a part of a constellation, a star like Sirius, which is incredibly important in our history, or other celestial things like the sun or like even the earth. In other words, when Greg winds the clock back and matches the alignments with the sky as seen on the moon in this time frame, at this latitude and longitude, we will know in a few days a lot more because it may be in order to make certain alignments that have ritual, historical associations with humanity. You cannot do it with a round circle. You can only do it with an oblong circle with the stones or the markers at irregular intervals because the alignments will only work. And we can test all this, and maybe in a week we'll know more than we know now. Fair enough for a, a zodiac then, because a zodiac would be a, an image of a celestial position of the solar system at this very specific day in a specific year, and that would be independent from any man-made calendar, and would only repeat maybe much yeah, but it does, times. The zodiac mm -hmm. is comprised of constellations around the celestial equator, um, I'm sorry, around the uh, Earth's orbit which are you know, very limited to planets and stars behind them. In this case, the alignments I don't think are along the ecliptic, but then again, I don't know, because one of the things Greg found out in the last 100,000 years, the orientation of north on the moon is totally different, even only as little as 100,000 years ago. So when he finishes his calculations and presents us with his alignments, his geometry, will know infinitely more than we do tonight, and we won't have to speculate, but we will be able to literally reconstruct the time frame for when the alignments matched the most likely series of objects, be they planets and or stars and or constellations uh, in the deep background. Question. Question. Yeah. So we know that the solar system is not a static in a static position. The whole, the whole so the whole solar system is traveling through space, 
Right. How is that? How is that reflecting the different constellations we would be observing at different times? Because the program will be able to is able to recalculate stellar positions, including uh, what's called a proper motion. Because, you know, the stars are not fixed. They're moving. They're so far away that their movements over a short period of time, like even 25,000 years, is pretty small. But over a much longer period of time, hundreds of thousands or millions of years, they, the whole sky is changed in terms of recognizable, you know, 21st century constellations. The program, yeah, that's what I'm now, thinking. The, yeah, the programs are – but they're so sophisticated – that basically you simply plug in the numbers and it gives you a simulation of the sky, including where the moon is pointing, anywhere in the last 100,000 years. At least that's what Greg said the current limit of the program is. And NASA has even better programs for themselves that they're not sharing. And that's why there are all kinds of astronomical telescope projects like the Hipparchus mission, which literally is pinpointed the positions of several million stars and their motions across the sky to incredible sub-arc second accuracy. So with the right computer, you could reconstruct the sky as seen from the moon going back several million years. And there would be different sets of constellations back then, wouldn't it? Well, of course, because the constellations are configurations that are known historically. And these programs used to be limited to 5,000 years, primarily because there wasn't enough data uh, in the astronomical community in the form of, you know, uh, ephemerids or archived, you know, uh, tables of latitude, longitude, or right ascension declination, as it's known in uh, astronomy. But now that we've got and have had for like 20 years, very sophisticated astronomical satellites like the Hipparchus, which, by the way, was named after the first Greek, you know, cartographer of the sky named Hipparchus. Now they can plug in, now they can plug in data that goes back millions of years because all that information, the distance to the star, the way it's traveling, its real motion in space, all that is now available in a database that is accessible by modern commercial computer sky programs. Uh, Richard, the uh, constellations. If you were, you know, here, here's a here's a starship. Go party. Uh, you go. You have to go about five. This is the estimate I've seen. About at least five light years away from here for the vast majority of things we consider as constellations uh, to be unrecognizable, you know, before you get a whole new set of them, because right. everything's so darn far apart in the uh, sky anyway. I mean, the Pleiades, most of those, most of the seven sisters or the 13 that the Indians say they saw and everything, uh, they're at least 100, 200 light years apart. But we happen to, they all happen to be in a place that uh, eventually gets to where we are. <laughs> we're a, we're an imaginary focal point, uh, so to us they look like that. But in any case, the uh, whole solar system here, and we know this, has been battered to hell. You know, we've had entire planets blow up, uh, right. uh, causing a complete reorbiting of others. 
and on and on and on, and we don't even know the limits well, well, of that. What does this have to what do with the Mars. what does this have to do with the alignments of the circle stones on the moon? Talking as if there was any fixed frame of reference. For no, them I'm to not. To. Not at all. Well, no, I'm saying. Uh, yes, absolutely. I'm saying that we now have enough data. NASA's acquired it with a fleet of satellites that were telescopes designed specifically to chart positions and motions of stars, you know, like 20,000, 30,000 light years away. And their motions, if you calculate in the computer where they would be forward or back, you can now do a sky map for anything that's of significance, plus or minus 100,000 years. And that's the time frame we're dealing with if, as I'm proposing, this circle on the moon is about mm -hmm. 30,000 years old. And that's not an accident. I forget who it was who mentioned uh, Bosnia, but that's the- me, Barbara. Hi, Barbara. That was the uh, radiocarbon date of the leaf, remember, in the underground tunnels? So we've got, we've got some, mm. some provisional dating, and Greg is going to look in that time window first. And if he sees key objects aligning with these objects on the moon in the, in the circle, and I'm using that in a generic sense, knowing that it's mm. not a real circle, we can, with Occam's razor, narrow down the possible alignments to a handful and see if they converge. This is very standard in astronomy. Astronomers do this all the time. Richard? Yeah? Um, you've probably already thought of this, although I don't believe it's been mentioned on the show so far, whether you were on or not yet, uh, back on yet. And that is, I believe I heard uh, said that this stone circle is a little bit south of the equator in the moon. Is that correct? About three degrees south. Only about three degrees south. So my question is, are there so is there a stone circle or are there stone circles on Earth on an approximate equivalent three degrees south of the equator? I think that's a Maria question. Mm -hmm. Maria? Uh, yes, to be honest, I'd have to research that to answer it, but it's a really interesting point that there could be this mirror image. Right. South Pacific comes to mind. I don't know. But keep in that. mind, if, right. Greg, if, 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 if Greg's preliminary look, with it, it's a very complex program. He's going to take some time to learn how to work it, okay? His discovery, which was really incredibly mind-blowing, that the orientation of north from the surveyor crater has changed radically by 90 degrees in 100,000 years because he went back to the beginning of the program to see what the limits were of angles. That's stunning because it means that this could not probably be an analog in the same lat long on Earth as it is on the moon. In other words, the generic form could be modulated anywhere, but the specific sighting would not necessarily work because the configurations for star alignments change on latitude on Earth all the time. Yeah, but I think you, you yourself said that you were going to be looking um, for alignments on the moon about 30,000 to 33,000 years right, ago. Right, right. And I have and no that's, idea. That's, that's, those alignments aren't going to change that much in only 30,000 yes, years. Yes, yes, they will. If they change 90 degrees in 100,000, if it's linear, 
that's a 30-degree change, you know, 3 into 90 is 30, 30, 30, in 30,000 years. We need to wait for him to do the work. 30, well, hold on, hold on. Are you saying that... Are you but saying that 100,000 years ago? Hang on, hold on, hold on, let me we're, get off the question. We're at a hard break. I've got to go. Oh, God's sake. You're on the other side of midnight, and passions are high, because the stakes here are non-trivial. If we have discovered, or are in the process of confirming, a stunningly artificial architecture on the moon, celestially anchored, pointing at a potential archive that has been ripped apart and purloined by persons unknown in years or millennia past, we still have an artifact that should not exist, which means the human race is not alone. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland, fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go. I have to get back to Barbara's Question. Yeah, if I, I, I could just ask the question a, I could before the break. I just want um, everyone to you, understand the magnitude, the historicity of what we're grappling with. To my mind, this is the first unequivocal artificial structure, which anybody looking at all those alignments, I mean, what are the odds of having four stones across 40, 50 feet all in a line and then have another set all in a line but a different direction. And then another. No, what's your sample? Another, Richard, to, could I ask my question? Counting 11, because it would have made the diagram too busy. And I didn't put in any of the southwest alignments or the southeast alignments. No, this is an artificial structure, which NASA knew was there. Richard. How did they know? Why did the Apollo 12 crew not go and bring home the library, because someone, before they got there, 
had stolen it and ruined, visibly ruined, the box. Barbara? Yeah, um, the question before the break is very simple. Um, it was a clarification question. Do I understand correctly that I believe you were saying that 30,000 years ago that the that the location of the stone circle on the moon would not still have been uh, would not then have been about three degrees south of the equator yes that's exactly what you're you're hearing me say okay so where would it have been approximately i have no idea we haven't done the work yet uh-huh. all evening i'm talking about greg using this program which he's totally unfamiliar with remember we're all citizen scientists here so it's going to take him a week to familiarize himself so he can plug in these wonderful questions and get real documentable mathematical answers, which are in the program. You just have to put in the right numbers. That's what he's going to do in the next week, put okay. in the right numbers. Well, regardless of what he comes up with, the basic concept I'm trying to get it across, I think Maria got it, and that is when we get the information that you're trying to get, that... My intuition tells me that this maps to a particular stone circle on Earth. I would love if you're right, but we don't know that yet. That's, that's all. That's right. No. <laughs> but you got, you got the idea. Yeah, of course. That's one of the possibilities in the mix, okay? The other possibility is that it corresponds to nothing on Earth because the original temple is so ancient that, you know, the Earth itself, remember the Earth is also processing. The moon and Earth are moving separately. They're not in synchronization except in terms of rotation and the month. And even that is, uh, you know, transitory on the scale that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a work in progress. I mean, if I'd been really, really smart, <clears throat> the technical issues notwithstanding at the top of the show, I would have probably held off a week or so or maybe two before we did this, because what I really think is the reason you build a circle is because it's a celestial clock. It's like radiocarbon dating, but it's even better because it never wears out. You know, there's a half-life problem of like 50,000 years for radiocarbon, then there's not enough carbon-14 to measure against background noise, whereas the stars are eternal. You know, even the most evanescent B or O type stars blazing with a million times the luminosity of the sun. They last millions of years. Billions? So it's, it's within, no, no. Those burn so fast, they're literally only a few million years and then they bang as, as a supernova. Right. Well, there's another concept I just want to get across, and that is I know that one of the, and Maria can correct this, but one of the proposed um, explanations for some stone circles, even Stonehenge perhaps on Earth, is that they were eclipse predictors. Now, what, now mm -hmm. let's assume for purposes of argument that that's true on some stone circle. Wouldn't one of the functions, or maybe the function of this stone circle on the moon would be to predict uh, solar eclipses of, you know, with the Earth with the Earth? No, because the opposite, this, the opposite of a of a of the moon coming in between the sun, like yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. 
And, and let, let me tell you why that's probably a very flat no. Stone circles on Earth were a primitive Stone Age culture's way of preserving ancient sacred information. They didn't have watches, they didn't have calculators, didn't have computers, didn't have clocks. They had the sky and they memorialized the clock time in the placement of the stones. On the moon, when this was built, there was nobody living outside as an agrarian Stone Age primitive. It was either a high-tech culture, which had clocks and watches and computers, or it was nothing. So, yeah, but, it's, but an eclipse is an extremely awesome phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, but you, don't, you, don't need, you don't need a stone circle on the moon to mark an eclipse. You've got a computer that tells you exactly when it's going to occur to the nearest millisecond. In other words, we didn't have computers back there. I don't know what you're saying. On the moon. We're talking only about the one on the moon. Yes, let me take but a you're shot at it. that some creatures made it. Let's some take intelligent a shot. Let me take, yeah, they made hey. it by coming to the moon in spaceships. They did not originate or live on the moon. Combatants, wait a second. Hear me? Keith is trying to, I would yeah. like Keith, to take a you? shot at this, okay? Go ahead. Since you, since you guys don't think the tablets have anything to do with the, all of this. Oh, because, no. Yeah, oh, shut up, Ron. The, the tablets. I let you cut in, Keith. Go ahead. Planet. This, the schematics of the, the tablets are the schematics of this planet. They're not Photoshopped. There's no King James version. There's no Solomon's version. Okay. Inky and Marduk went to the moon to chart the heavens to prevent the event that caused the flood in the first place. If they built something like that to do the charting, like Richard said, that's why they're probably there. They may have set that up. Four four thousand, seven thousand years ago? When did the flood take place? Calculate well, that. Well, the my time frame is around twelve thousand years ago. Eleven, twelve thousand. Which well, is the mm, age of, of Gobekli Tepe. That's consistent with what everyone else says, which is in the research uh, industry. Thank you. Yes. Well, whoever did this on the moon, you have to say they weren't indigenous, we know that, because the environment. If they came in spaceships, they didn't need stone circles. Give me a break. It's for the primitives coming afterwards from Earth. Probably their ancestors were probably looking at family. Well, our ancestors, their their descendants, yes. My my whole point, Richard, if there are stone circles on Earth that are eclipse predictors, why not this one on the moon? Because you don't need it. You need it on Earth either, but they're here. Well, look, this is an argument we're not going to solve. Obviously, we have two totally different perspectives because we have two totally different knowledge bases. I'm going to solve it. It's a ritual object. It's a ritual site. You know, for you to say that we don't have those anymore is to deny all religions. Still build churches. They still have ceremonies. They just didn't have watches in the Middle Ages, but they sure do now. What's the difference? Stonehenge was a celestial launch How many, how many okay. angels can dance on the head of the pin? Andrew, I don't, you know, chime in. Yeah, uh, that's what I wanted to get to, Richard, is someone sort of facetiously said in an email string at some point during this process, um, oh, the ancient moon druids putting down the rocks. And it kind of made me think, yeah, like, and, and now you're saying it, you're kind of saying, well, 
you know, one way to memorialize this and to let the future people who may not speak the same language as the people that put this down or or but at least understand mathematics and spacing and geometry, et cetera, it's like we're, what we're talking about would be rocks, moon rocks. But there is another element here. I, I've been obsessing, as everybody knows, on um, Keith Laney's wonderful Gigapan, or as Robert would say, Gigipan, um, <laughs> DeForest Crater. And there are some stunning you know, rock formations which look peculiar. How do I say the word? Peculiar. They look like temples. Yes, but they're out in the open. And so I well, was I mean, out in the open in this crater, but you don't know if those craters ever had domes over them. Right, and Ron, so, so because Ron has proposed agricultural domes on Mars, there's yep. a lot of evidence that a lot of craters that we think of as impacts are actually structures, and the overhead dome is gone, unlike yeah. at Jezero on Mars. So yeah, they were built at a time when there was air in the dome, in the crater, so you could have surface structures like we have on Earth. But, but this structure on at the Surveyor Crater is not that, not any way, shape, or form. Well, Ron, Ron and I, we have long, extensive conversations, as I know you do. And one of the things that tweaked me here tonight was, I think was Ron made a comment one time to me that he believes, Ron, if I'm wrong, correct me, but that there may right. be people, people put on the moon at various stages of the decline. I mean, think of Mars and, and the decline of its atmosphere and a descending yeah. civilization. And that there may have been people like, I don't know if they're remnant people or put there on purpose. And I know we're total speculation here, but but that they may be kind of not simpletons, but more ancient types that were kind of left behind or put there. And I know it's just I'm trying mm -hmm. to figure out why stones, you know, like why not something more sophisticated? Now, to, to kind of go another step, we have seen a similar thing on Mars, Richard. When well, wait, 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 wait. How, how do you know they're not more sophisticated? I have hints in some of the imagery from Bean's camera, because he's the one standing next to the surveyor that took the closest images we have. And then those closest, some of them are out of focus. And in the transcript, he apologizes for them being out of focus. He said it for, you know, 15 feet as opposed to 70 plus, that kind of thing. I think that's part of the cover-up. But anyway, when you look at the best images, this thing had a purpose the circle had a purpose and when you look at the individual stones and the best enhancements i can do they appear maybe they're not just rocks they are the bases of much taller things that have eroded away ah okay or were melted or were shattered in an effort to destroy the marker for those who would come after like us yeah, that's that's interesting. So almost maybe remnants of vases of pillars or something. I, I yeah, but we, we do not know that they're rocks. Right. I'm assuming if you're going to make a, a monument on the moon that's going to last a long time. Remember the standard NASA you know, discussion is that the footprints of the astronauts will last millions of years. Right. Well, right, right, right. I don't yeah. think that's true because the moon is being peppered by micrometeorites all the time i think the gardening by micrometeorites will get rid of them long before millions of years that's not even counting the remnants of the dome over the entire moon which shields the surface but when you look at this 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 construct it looks like it was made out of available stuff 
Maybe not. We have no closer imagery. We need to send a private mission. Elon, are you listening? To land here and get within 10 feet and take some damn good pictures, and then we'll know. But the fact that in that LRO image, there are no footprints that go anywhere near this tells me that they realized when they got there that somebody had stolen the goodies long before they arrived. Well, Richard, if I could just add one more thing and then I'll butt out because I know we're getting close to the end. We do have a precedence of using stone, we think, when we've seen the sort of signposts on Mars. Remember how we you, you mm-hmm. called it park? What did you say, like a park sign for a park? Remember? Uh, yeah, I, 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 kind of a flip way. I, Parker, when, park or something. Well, when, 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 when Keith Laney found that object yeah. near Murray Buttes, to me, I said it looks like a Parker marker, you know, which is really like when my parents and I and my brothers and sisters were driving around the country, my father would stop at every one of those highway markers oh. so, we could, so we could read it. He didn't used to do that. He used to whip by at 60 miles an hour, and we beat him to a pulp, and then he finally learned, no, you got to stop because you can't read everything that fast. So if, if Mars and the moon were host to successive high-tech civilizations spaced tens or hundreds of thousands of years apart. You could have a succession of memorializations for later cultures by earlier cultures for their descendants. Remember, those who care enough to send the very best. So I'm looking at this as a 30,000-year marker. This is where we left the good stuff and somebody in between went and stole it. And it may be the Nazis. It may be the breakaways. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a better guess than some of the others. Like what? Well, better than what? Name name one other that's mm. not a good guess. Uh, the fact that it's simply what it looks to be. It's a stone circle for some ritual purpose that may or may not have advanced physics involved in it. And it was left there because that was a place where it wouldn't get disturbed and could indeed survive for a long, long time. You forget that empires tend to destroy each other in um, in presentation as well as in their uh, major population centers. You know, they knock the noses off of statues so that they can discredit and disenfranchise the god that it represents or something like that you put your you put your monument on the moon and it's going to be up there for all that believe as you do to look up and say ah we've got that mark that's us uh no matter what somebody else does until they can get there i think well if there is successful see we only got about the you know 10 minutes here if there's one of these there could be more than one marking other important ancient structures, no longer even visible, with their own time capsules describing, you know, what they were. And when uh, we have, I, when you're right, I hope so. When we have this global, you know, onslaught of all the commercial, you know, corporations going like Musk to various parts uh-huh. of the moon, the South Pole the North Pole, you know, Mari Christie, wherever, 
with enough people and enough private satellites, there will be enough coverage that we may find more. In fact, Holger, you found not too far away in Prosolarum another collection of similar-looking things, but the geometry is nowhere near as precise as what we're seeing here, right? Yeah, that was uh, in the same Shandarian 2 image, only 10 kilometers west of Apollo 12 sites. I found this wait, wait. Uh, similar 10, 10 kilometers, speak, speak miles, that's six miles, okay? Yeah, a few miles now, away now, from the Shandarian. Well, well, six miles, all right, so draw a circle with a six-mile radius. How many square miles is that? Almost 400 square miles. Yeah, it, it, it was a random find. I did not look uh, systematically. It was just a random find in that one. But it's interesting because the, the main... Yeah, but when I looked also... at it, didn't, I didn't see the sense of artificiality that this one gives us. That one no, looks it, like... It's, it's less, less precise, but it's the less. same diameter. Uh, and it's interestingly at the same 600 feet uh, main crater, and it's it's the same location in the main crater. Also, well, what we will do is what we will do in our spare time is we'll input this to Greg Aaron's research, have him do the alignments, and see if we get something that makes sense. This is the way yeah. science works. You have a hypothesis, you have a test of the hypothesis. Okay, we got 10 minutes. Anybody have any? Questions or comments that that we've not covered. I got one. Something left but over. The main in topic the... is uh, what yeah. happened at NASA and everyone on the science field in the engineering field since 1967 or 69, Apollo 12, who most likely have seen this and nobody told about it mm -hmm. until. We found this Shandalian image and then looked back at the old Apollo 12 image and saw that definitely there. So someone must have seen it before. Hmm. Richard, your, your block is geometric. Yes, of course it is. Have it's you a seen block. My image? Yeah, I drew this images for you. Um, I've got to jump in because it's so important. Um, yeah, by all means. Yeah, let's click on Ruggiero. He has done he has done a, an amazing sketch number four in Ruggiero's. Number three is my blown up box, uh, and number four is his sketch, and number five is the alignment. And n number five, by the way, you did a hell of a good job in enlarging the uh, the overhead Chandrayaan image. Thank you. That's not a rock. That's, that's uh, incredibly geometric. No, that's an artificial thing. And the and the object in the center of the circle is a tetrahedron. This so if you've got two objects in the construct, sorry about that. If you've got two objects in this construct which are artificial, what are the odds that the other parts of the circle are also artificial, but our resolution because of censoring by NASA is just too lousy for us to tell? If you look at image six, which is, I, I tried to quickly in um, just some rough geometries and, and measurements. And I on, love it. And whether you look at image uh, four, and I, I, it's not, it's a really rough sketch, and I, I didn't have tracing paper, so I, I, I just tried to pull out my artist's impression. But when you actually get, anyone can do this. You can go and get a ruler and a protractor. Just use a ruler on if you get to image three, which is your, the image you sent me, which I did a screenshot on, and you just measure the sides. They're all uh, quite symmetrical. And then when you go on to image six, 
Well, look at the shadow. Yeah. That's a geometric shadow. You can't get a geometric shadow from a lump of rock. No, no. But image six um, actually configures over with Barbara's image two. It's geometrical with uh, regards to numbers and angles as well. I want you to study image six, Richard. Wait a minute, Bar- Barbara's image no, number two? No, my, my image six first and then go on to Barbara's. It's, I don't have an image. Oh, then it must be. Sorry, I'm getting lost. George's. George's yeah. image two. My image six. Ah, the Sephiroth. Mm. Well, now that's back in Ron's game about memorializing ritual. There we go. And there's numbers within. So obviously there's geometry within image six and mm. measurement. And I'll, I'll hand it over the t- to the team to discuss. By far the yeah. best, best, best image is Chandrayaan. And here I want to go back to our conversation on, um, on Chandrayaan 3. Mm-hmm. And and Modi, who believes in ancient Indian history and not ancient Indian mythology. And look at who took the best damn pictures from lunar orbit of this stunning circle. It wasn't the U.S., it wasn't NASA, it wasn't Russians, it wasn't Japanese. It was India. Mm-hmm. And then they posted it so McGuire could find it in their open file. Mm-hmm. The Indians have a motive for openness. I see their fingerprints in this, and they were trying to get the word out again, because it didn't make a big deal. I don't know how McGuire found it, because you got to go through millions of square miles of lunar stuff to find something this extraordinary. And then it happens to be the same place we, meaning NASA, visited twice. What are the yeah, odds? Yeah, image 12. Yeah. Opus 12. Yeah. Andrea, my comment was very short, and it has to do with the fact that I believe it's Dean. I'm not going to read the transcript to get out loud, loud again. Uh, he's commenting on the so-called blocky crater. I mean, that is what it's called, but the, the odd name. Uh, he says, look at this. We have never seen corners this sharp on any anything like this and uh, the other one agrees with him uh Holy so both cow. of them agree yeah it's right there in the transcript well now, when i uh, looked at the, at the close-ups and obviously we had limited time so i didn't do it but if i were to post beans photos the close-ups of blocky crater yeah those blocks are architecture they're yeah exactly blocks. They've got rebar. They've got corners, cornices. And, and again, Emily Dickinson, he's not saying this is the foundations blasted apart of a buried building, but that's what Ron thinks. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. That's what the data thinks. And that's what, I mean, being to know about the moon and erosion and talk about sharp geometric corners. Ah. My apologies to anyone who might think I'm throwing shade on Alan Bean, which I'm not, quite the opposite. But I think that in his case, possibly because of his artist interpretations, which leads to a stronger uh, right brain attitude, the programming that they all went through so that they could more comfortably do their mission without saying something embarrassing, uh, to put it too kindly, that didn't work on him, and yet he was faking it. He was playing along like somebody who's, you know, 
it's the, the picture that comes to mind is like in The Walking Dead when somebody would smear themselves <laughs> with the remains of the dead so they could shuffle along, go <laughs> along with the with the real zombies who wouldn't bother them because they would, you know. I think he was I think he was actually zombifying himself to protect the fact that he wasn't fooled or uh, brain dead, and that but, would be reflected in his artwork. But Ron, not in his later years, because he was mm-hmm. given the go-ahead by his compatriots. He asked for permission from his comrades, his fellow astronauts, Richard, remember, and they said, oh. yes, you should go and paint. There is a, there is a subtext Deep going block. on here much, much deeper. And Ooh. I, yeah, it, it, he said it. You could read it in, in, in what he talks about it when, when he talks about his paintings. He asked for permission. He asked for yeah. it, and they said, yeah, go ahead. I think that these guys knew exactly, as Richard has said, that mm-hmm. Alan Bean was a conduit to begin to open this up, and we're seeing it now. And there was some extraordinary well, – just, just compare yeah. his paintings, and we got literally 45 seconds. Compare his paintings, those brilliantly colorful paintings, to the real Apollo photography in the libraries. All you have to do is download them, increase the saturation, and bingo, there's the color that he saw. No, I think, uh, Andrew, you're on to it, that this was mm. a kind of a counterinsurgency within the astronaut corps to have someone get the word out, even if it had to be Emily Dickinson style. And we are out of time. Guys, I want to thank, and gals, I want to thank everyone for really amazing contributions. I'm sorry about our technical problems uh, earlier on. We're going to have one heck of a time in doing the editing. So until tomorrow night, when we switch gears just slightly to AI, but I'm going to cross over and talk about how the application of AI to the lunar Stonehenge model could give us new answers. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on to morning. Good night, everyone. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.